Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. The great question uh, at the beginning of June in the United States is whether the, the civil unrest about race uh, is different this time, whether it's really going to change anything. Nobody can see into the future, of course. But one guy who's been through this before and has written about it in some detail is the Los Angeles-based journalist and novelist, uh, Hector Tobar. Hector won a, a Pulitzer Prize for covering the LA riots. And in his uh, 2011 novel, uh, Barbarian Nurseries, he wrote, uh, it's quite a thing to be able to measure the passing of time by conflagrations one has seen by the looting crowds and the firemakers. Uh, in, a, in a recent essay, wonderful essay in, in Lit Hub, uh, Hector quotes that and asks uh, what 2020 will mean for us when we look back in the history of riots. Uh, so Hector, let me throw the question back at you. Is it different this time, 2020? Oh. Oh, absolutely. You know, having lived through uh, 1992 and this moment of um, citywide violence and reflection that followed, um, you know, I, I'm just really, um, I'm really, it's just really wonderful to see how multicultural almost all of these demonstrations are. You know, we've seen essentially the white middle class join in this movement in massive numbers. And that just wasn't true in 1992. You know, I, I witnessed this uprising, riot, whatever you want to call it, in 1992. And it was almost exclusively a Latino and Black affair. Um, took place in a really large chunk of the city, and it was extremely violent. I mean, it was almost like all the violence you've seen all over the country wrapped into one place. You and know? this was the, the Rodney King. Um, yeah, it was the Rodney King riots. Uh, Rodney King had been a motorist who was beaten. Uh, videotape beating one of the first of these incidents of racism, uh, of police of police violence against an African American person that was videotaped. Video cameras were new then in the early 1990s, and of course the officers were later charged. They were found not guilty by a jury, which set off these citywide riots that lasted two and a half days. So yeah, the the feel of this is completely different. Uh, a nationwide movement, really racially integrated, um, people of all different classes. You know, we saw Mitt Romney yesterday marching, uh, or uh, over the weekend marching uh, in Washington D.C. Um, for racial justice. Um, who would have predicted that a conservative senator, Republican senator from Utah, would join, uh, you know, uh, black and brown people on the streets of Washington D.C. marching? Uh, it, that is, it is very remarkable in that sense. Hector, uh, I hope you're right, but. I am still a little wary, a little suspicious, perhaps slightly cynical about all this. After all, isn't it all too easy to throw one's cap into the ring? I mean, who's against racism these days, um, uh, apart perhaps from the current president um, and some of his supporters? But, but basically, 
it's more than just demonstrating for an afternoon. We need substantial structural change, don't we? Oh, absolutely. And obviously, that's usually where these things uh, end up uh, coming to a halt. These movements come to a quick halt when they actually um, become legislation, uh, you know, in a, in a state capital or in Washington, D.C. Um, but what I sense is different here is, is more of a cultural shift. You know, I think that for years now, uh, you know, uh, Americans have been treated to these uh, images, these stories of violence against black bodies. And it's, I think it's become kind of normalized. You know, I think people treat it as sort of like, oh, well, you know, there's hurricanes and brush fires. We see those on television. And then every, you know, several times a year, a black person is murdered someplace, you know, in, in suspicious circumstances uh, involving, uh, you know, the forces of law and order. And I think people had sort of, you know, people are kind of used to it in a certain sense. And it didn't really, people didn't, you know, the people outside of the black African-American and Latino communities didn't really sort of see this as, as something that would cause them, uh, you know, to, to want to march, uh, to go out and carry signs, make signs. Um, I think what's changed, I think the pandemic has everything to do with it. You know, I think the fact that the entire world was left in this period of, of reflection for two, three months. You know, <laughs> we were all we were all placed in this existential state, and that's why you're seeing marches now in Madrid, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter demonstrations in Madrid and London. You know, in Hong Kong, um, it's because the entire world was placed in this position of reflection, and then as a, a perfect storm, this video, you know, the the slow torture murder of a man in Minneapolis in a multiracial neighborhood. If you look at the videos, it's just really stunning to how, how many different kinds of people there are in this particular kind of neighborhood. And so I think a lot of things have combined to, to, for, for a really important cultural shift, whether it becomes a political shift, whether, whether things are changed you know, on a legislative level uh, in all the different jurisdictions that things must change in, that's another story. But I, I can definitely feel a cultural shift has taken place in these last, uh, last few weeks. Must be kind of weird in a way to be in LA. You're uh, you're living in downtown LA. You're unusual. You're not out in the suburbs. Uh, but after all, in 1965 and in 1992, LA was ground zero in the riots. Today, it, it's just another city coming out in sympathy with with Minnesota. What's it like in in Los Angeles at the moment? Well, you know, we're just starting to come out of the pandemic. You know, the tra- I think the way we measure things here in Los Angeles is by the traffic. You know, I mean, obviously the city is notorious for that. And, you know, I can still drive across the metropolis. I, I sometimes drive to my office at the University of California, Irvine, a distance of 42 miles from my home. And on a, you know, average day before the pandemic, um, during the day that drive could take me an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and 30 minutes. And now I can do it in 45 minutes, you know, because there's much less traffic. So the city is still sort of in a semi-hibernation state. Um, that's why it was it was extraordinary to see so many people out on the streets. I mean, we'd all sort of been locked inside. Um, and so LA to me is in sort of this transition state right now where we haven't quite emerged from the pandemic. Uh, you know, the levels of, of, um, uh, of the disease here are still fairly high. We haven't We've just begun to enter phase three. Some restaurants are opening. I, I saw my first restaurant customers uh, a couple of days ago uh, I hadn't seen in ages. So 
you know, we're still in kind of this state of, um, of waiting to see what the future looks like. What can Los Angeles, though, teach the rest of America about the, the post-riot age, the challenges and needs to, to cement structural change to inequality and injustice? After all, as I said earlier, and, and as you note in your, in your wonderful essay, in 65 and 1992, uh, L.A. was the heart of the storm. What did L.A. do right and wrong after those conflagrations? Well, I think that what L.A. has consistently done wrong and what California has done wrong is that it hasn't really addressed the growing structural inequality uh, in, in Southern California especially, but really in all of, in all of this, the cities of California. You know, the middle class here has been shrinking uh, basically during the entire course of my lifetime. You know, in my, I'm in my 50s, and since the 70s, I've seen the, uh, the middle class shrinking. So I think California has done a really poor job of that. Um, you know, we have a, a Democratic majority in both houses of the Assembly, a Democratic governor. Um, and yet um, the, the entrenched interests, you know, in real estate, business, um, have not allowed, um, uh, you know, a really comprehensive reform of the tax structure. There isn't really even a sort of, uh, you know, a great popular will for that. There isn't uh, a big popular movement uh, to change the sort of basic, um, uh, you know, uh, class and power structure of the state. Um, and so I'm afraid. I mean, I'm afraid that the rest of the country will follow California's example because, um, you know, we feel, I feel like California is ripe for, for some serious, uh, you know, class conflict uh, in the coming years, and so I, I hope that the rest of the country doesn't follow um, California's lead. I mean, to me, I've written before in writing for the New York Times op-ed pages how uh, Los Angeles, to me, begins is beginning to feel more like a quote-unquote third-world city, but not because of its racial makeup. You know, because this now is a city that it's been for a while now a city that has a majority of people of color. Uh, to me, what makes LA feel like a third world city is just the rampant inequality. You know, we, we had just lived through this huge economic boom and we have tens of thousands of homeless people everywhere. So um, to me, I hope LA doesn't follow, uh, the rest of the country doesn't follow on LA's example. Yeah, you write in the essay, I was falling out of love with my hometown in the days before the virus arrived. Have you fallen back in love with it though, during the virus? Well, I think that... Um, there, there's something about Angelinos that I really love. I mean, Angelinos are really open-minded people. Um, we tend to be very shy, and we don't, we're not very um, uh, garrulous people in terms of get, we don't gather together very often. Um, but I, you know, just seeing um, how people have coped on an individual level from the people that we know here in our community and the people in our orbit, just to see the their fortitude, uh, you know, through this has been really wonderful. Um, what I really like about Los Angeles is just how comfortable people are with ethnic diversity. You know, this is something that has really evolved in my lifetime. Um, Los Angeles um, used to be much more segregated than it is now. I mean, I think especially among the middle class, um, there is a lot more integration of the races. And that's part of what's going on, not just in Los Angeles, but the rest of the country is that younger people today are more used to, um, they're, they're, they're more used to the idea of a multicultural country. They're more used to the idea that black culture is part of their culture, right? Um, 
And so, you know, to me, that makes me hopeful. And that's one of the things that I, I really love about Los Angeles that hasn't gone away. And my, my hope is that, you know, within all of these crises, we'll be able to hold on, you know, to that sense of ourselves as a people who are better because we represent so many different uh, strands of humanity. You know, so many different strands of human history are gathered here in Los Angeles. Um, and that's really its strength. I agree, actually. And uh, I'm in Northern California, which unfortunately is, is, is all too white, um, at least the, 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 the fancy parts of it. Um, is there uh, a, a sort of a, a passionate and intense solidarity, uh, Hector, between the Latino community and the, back, the black community, particularly over these latest outrages? You know, I think there is. And I think it's at a very grassroots level. You know, I don't think it's at the level of community leaders or spokespeople you know, just the other day, I went to go visit my father who lives on the west side of La Cienega Boulevard. Um, as, as I was leaving his home uh, in the afternoon, um, suddenly the traffic at the corner of La Cienega and Jefferson came to a halt. And I had this flashback. And I could tell there was something happening just like it happened in 1992. Because all the traffic had come to a halt. People were getting out of their cars and looking around. And there was something happening up ahead. And it was, it was, a, it was a, a protest, a demonstration. And suddenly I see these Latino and black kids together filtering through the cars, marching, carrying signs. And I asked them, what's going on? And one of them said, um, you know, it's a takeover. You know, they had taken over the intersection and they were very young. I, I would say they, they all looked high school and college age. And, um, you know, Latino and black people live side by side in Southern California um, in large numbers. And I think that that level at the level of experience there is this, um, uh, this sense of shared experience. And I think that I personally, as a Latino writer and intellectual, have a tremendous amount of um, respect. And I believe we have a tremendous debt as Latino people, a debt to African-American people and African-American struggle. And I think that that's, that's more common than, than is acknowledged um, because our leaders don't really do a very great job of expressing that. Um, but it, it is definitely at the grassroots neighborhood level, I believe there is a shared sense of identification. You write also very evocatively in your essay about your kids, your teenage kids, um, one, one teenager, perhaps one slightly older, and their response to this. Obviously, there's a generational shift here. Obviously, everybody knows that younger people are particularly passionate about the injustice, the injustices around America and Minnesota and everywhere else. Is this different, though, perhaps from the 60s or other generational shifts in, in, in American urban life and culture? You know, what surprises me is just how much information people have access to. That, that to me, is, is remarkable. You know, like when I was growing up as a high school student in Southern California in the 1970s, you know, how was I going to learn about, let's say, you know, the gay movement in Los Angeles? How was I, how was I going to learn about African-American struggle? Well, you know, I didn't have any black neighbors when I, where I lived in South Whittier in, uh, in the 1970s. And here's my daughter, who's the you know, same age, 16 years old. She has access to a worldwide library of African-American history, gay and lesbian struggle, you know, um, just she has access to, she was explaining to me, I was looking at these demonstrations and these acronyms I did not understand, ACAB, you know, 
And my daughter has not left the home. She's been here in quarantine with us. She explained it all to me. <laughs> she understood everything. And so there is this um, phenomenal, uh, this generation that has this phenomenal knowledge, this, you know, this, this knowledge that is, is sort of from the collectivity, right? Sort of, you know, cloud thinking. And um, that to me is, is really impressive. And just also, you know, a sort of more, I mean, I just feel like my generation, we were a little bit more naive about the way the world worked, you know. Uh, we still believed a lot in this idea of meritocracy. I think that among the generation, uh, you know, speaking in the totality of the generation, I just think there's a lot more sense of um, a little bit more cynicism, right, about the way uh, American democracy works. And, and maybe that's a healthy and a good thing. Hector, you mentioned earlier that you thought that in, in some ways Los Angeles was more like a, a third world city for, for better or worse. Uh, as, a, as a career journalist, you've, you've reported from Mexico City and some other Latin American capitals. Is Los Angeles and indeed most of these U.S. major metropolitan centers, are they increasingly like? The great cities of, of, of Latin America, Mexico City, Rio, Sao Paulo, Buenos Aires? Well, you know, I just feel, I do feel a kind of proto-dysfunction here in Southern California. Um, you know, I just feel um, this rising uh, kind of frustration and, and a very, very uh, incipient sense of class consciousness and resentment, you know. Uh, to me, and I think that, that that is spreading throughout the United States, I think maybe it's more marked here in, in California because of the extremes of wealth and poverty that we see. Um, you know, and, and I, you know, I definitely, I, I just see this really strong sense of resentment. And that's when you go, when you go live in the third world, so-called the developing world, the global south. Uh, I lived in Mexico City. I lived in Buenos Aires. Um, I spent seven years living in Latin America, and before that, I was a Latin American sort of studies uh, person. Um, what, one of the things you notice is how small the middle class is, and you 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 miss sort of this sort of egalitarian sense that the American middle class has, the sense of fairness, you know, that the the institution should be fair, that they've been set up to be fair, and um, and so uh, to me, that is something that I think is slowly, very slowly disappearing in this country, you know, and there's been tons of books written about it. You know, I, I love George Packer's book, The Unwinding uh, is one of my favorite books about this, about how, how this sort of American sense of, uh, of equality is, is slowly dying and how, you know, all these different policies, all these different business models have sort of chipped away at American equality. So I think that's that's it's it's a very real uh, thing that's happening, and now we have now we have a third world president. <laughs> now we have a strong man. We have our own, you know, we have our own Peron. We have our own uh, Hugo Chavez, you know, Peron mixed together. We have our own right wing uh, Generalissimo. <laughs> so yeah, in lots of ways, um, they really do seem very similar. Yeah, it's a great uh, it, it's a great observation, uh, Hector. And um, we had uh, an Argentine political philosopher on, on the show last week talking about uh, the the sort of the, the, the Latin American reading, so to speak, of fascism, and, and and he suggested we should 
reread not only uh, Marquez, of course, but particularly Borges. Uh, you're not only a journalist, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and a nonfiction writer, but you're also a novelist. Uh, your book uh, is your new, your latest novel, The Last Great Road Bomb, is just out. Um, people should, of course, read that as well as all your other novels. But what should we be reading uh, in this weird time where we're having race riots and coronavirus crisis and this third world, uh, third world nature of American supposed democracy, the disappearance of the middle class? People are stuck at home. What would you advise people to read? Well, I'm currently reading one of the best biographies I've ever read. Um, I, I love biographies uh, because they give you a very intimate sense of a time. They can teach you history, but they can also teach you how people thought and how they uh, loved each other and how they made families. And, and so I'm currently reading um, a wonderful biography of Frederick Douglass called Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom by the historian David W. Blight. Um, tremendous book, and um, and I, I love it because it, it sheds light on this uh, on the on the card the original sin right of the founding of the American Republic, which was slavery, and Frederick Douglass's incredible journey uh, from uh, from slave hand uh, you know uh, to runaway slave to orator to you know leader of his people and writer and thinker. Um, an extraordinary journey uh, that really, you know, just tells us a lot. It just, it just really illustrates, makes you feel the injustice of slavery and how deeply rooted these hatreds uh, can go uh, in you know, how deeply rooted they are in American history. And yet, on the other hand, of course, Douglas's story is also the all-American story, isn't it? Absolutely. Rags to riches. You can't get any more American than that. You know, he goes back uh, at the end of uh, near the end of his life. He goes back to uh, the, the, the plantation where he was a slave that, uh, this, uh, and meets his old owner. And and they have, uh, you know, they have uh, they exchange words uh, that they reflect on on the passage of time and on slavery. And yes, a, an incredible reinvention. American history is, is filled with those. Uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln is another one, and there are just so many uh, of, of people who've reinvented themselves. You know, that's still the great hope of this country is that it's a place where people can come to to uh, completely reinvent themselves and, and, to ex and to find ways to defend and express their humanity. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.